mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we currently talk about whatever book we want. My name is Karina Dunhu and I'm an author and a clavicle that Rainwater collects in. Joining me is the writer you can dial 555-MARY to reach, Ella Risbridger. Hey! Hi! Hi! Good to be back, it's been a minute. It has been a hot minute. I wish I had like some big excuses as to why we suddenly just just stopped. (laughs) No, do you know what it was? It was because we could go for walks again. That was it. Oh my god, I hadn't even put that together. Because it was because we, we could go, go for, for walks, walks again and we weren't just locked in our bedrooms. Yeah. Very appropriately for this book. This very lockdown. It is, yeah. It, I mean, it is a book about locking people down and trapping people in their homes. And being a teenage girl. Anyway. Yes. But we'll, we'll get to it. We'll, we'll time, friggin' get to it. In case anyone hasn't seen by the, um, the episode title, this is The Virgin Suicides by a man which is rare on this podcast, but not entirely uh, unheard of, um, by Jeffrey Eugenides, who every time, I read his, every time I read his last name, I want to say eugenics, but it is not eugenics. It's eugenides. Eugenides. I think, eugenides. I think so, but I'm not an expert in Greek names. No. Um, so our experiences of this book is I picked it up the old-fashioned way, which is in an open bookshop, a bookshop that was selling things to people who wanted to buy them still, at this point, you know, feels like a novelty. Hang on, you legit went inside? I went inside, I saw it on the table, it was in a two for twelve, and I bought it. Oh my god, I bought Kathy Kelly's book on the... Kitty Kelly's book on the Royals from a box outside Blackheath Bookshop, and I still felt like a badass. Bought a book from a bookshop. It's just... Can't stop me. It's just good they to browse again. You know, they took it and they can't and they can't give it back. <laughs> you can't browse though. Only with browse with your eyes. Yeah. You can't true. touch it with your disgusting disease hands. No, of course not. Um so I I picked this up last week and then just read it in two sittings. Absolutely loved it. Um had obviously heard of it in my youth, um, but had avoided it because I always thought that it was a book about I mean, I always thought that it was a book Virgins about men who, commit suicide. men who are obsessed with women who commit suicide. And it is that, but it also <laughs> isn't what I thought at all. I thought of it as being this very sort of like gauzy, very lusty, very like women being very sort of flat and not really caring about their internal lives. And in fact, what I found was that all it is is a quest for these women's internal lives. Um, so I was very yeah. surprised and I loved it, but I would love to know what your experience of this book has been. So like everybody else, apart from you, where were you when everyone else was like, it's got the word virgin and the word suicide in the title, <laughs> therefore we're no. going to read it. I mean, in terms of baiting teenage girls to read something, calling your book The Virgin Suicides, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like catnip, isn't it? I was obsessed you know, with I, I think virginity I was and too- suicide too deep into that cool girl phase where I was only reading men if they were in Paris in the 1920s and that's all I cared about. 
I remember the very tail end of that phase of you. Yeah, that's about when we met, I think. Just when you were just fading out of like, Hemingway is important. (laughs) Have you read Revolutionary Road? Oh, shut up! (laughs) And the answer is, no, I haven't. You still haven't read it? No. Oh, God. Yes, and like, um, and I see this as well as being very much a HMV book. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I know exactly what you mean. Which makes it all the more surprising to me that you, a veteran HMV... Someone who worked at HMV for three years and therefore came to despise anything that women of my own demographic were buying or reading. And I think that's what it is. I think it's like when you work behind a counter with a lot of cool guys and you want to be one of the cool guys. It's classic cool girl syndrome. Did you, you also despise? Did you also despise large posters of Audrey Hepburn? Yes, only because I had once owned them and that was therefore, you know, kind of mentally sort of kicking them under my bed, being like, I never had these things. And also, Audrey like, Hepburn, who women are obsessed with and men don't care about. Oh my God, that line from this book, Audrey Hepburn... Who, who women idolise and men don't think about at all. That This book is just so filled with those kinds of lines. I think what amazes me is that the demographic who I most associate with reading this book, because I was myself a teenage girl, are the demographic the book is desperately trying to reach from the perspective of a middle-aged man. Yeah. And I'm kind of into thinking about what was it we all saw in it? Not you, obviously, because you... I was too busy being cool. You were too busy being cool behind the desk and hoping that boys would notice that you would actually knew who Yates was. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I love you. A, sa- a savage um, and accurate read. Uh, yeah, but... Why... What did I gain from thinking this book was amazing? I mean, it's really good. It's a really good book, guys. I'm going to be, in some ways the devil's advocate for this book because I have mixed feelings about it now but adored it when I was 15 Mm -hmm. 15 or 16 but I think it's really interesting that we wanted to see ourselves through the eyes of middle-aged men and is that how you remember reading it being like I'm these girls that that are being looked at in a way I remember thinking that I wasn't like but that they were something to aim for this sexy suicide girl Mm. I don't know, I was having a really interesting discussion with somebody about Sylvia Plath and whether we teach girls to idolise Sylvia Plath or whether they just get there on their own. That's so interesting. Because there was a tweet about we need to stop teaching girls to idolise Sylvia Plath. And I think we do teach girls to idolise Plath. I think every bit of our culture, in lots of ways, is a very specific kind of teenage girl who is given, like, these role models and all of them are dead all of these sexy women yeah yeah it's all this like her dead body is perfected plath stuff which i don't know i'm not going to draw a direct line between having been really very suicidal in my late teens and early 20s and being obsessed with sylvia plath but nonetheless i'm not the only person i know for whom those things are both true there's a great line towards the end of this book that we'll read in full later where it says um there's a doctor who describes suicide as being a, a, a gun in Russian roulette and every chamber is filled with something and how the Lisbon girls, one was filled with, you know, parental violence, one was filled with um, genetic predisposition to depression or whatever and we don't know what the other, the other chambers were filled with. And I think 
we could put Sylvia Plath in one of those chambers. <laughs> I think we can put Plath in one of those chambers. But then, who are in Plath's chambers, you know? Yeah, and I think it's particularly as well, I think, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't really think about Sylvia Plath that much when I was reading it, but I think it's a really pertinent thing to bring up because I particularly, I think I also haven't seen the film and I always do associate this movie with the kind of, the stills of the movie I've seen, Kristen Dunst, beautiful yes. blonde hair, and also it kind of lays on top of that image of Plath that has, is being, I think, particularly in the last sort of decade or so, very pushed on the common consensus, which is Plath in a bikini looking stunning on the beach at 17, like on a book cover. Do you know what I mean? Again, something about which I have a nuanced feeling. Um, I don't feel very black and white about this. I vividly remember writing quite a long article about why Plath should be allowed to be in a bikini Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. why it was fine to use that image for the cover of her letters and I kind of stand by it and kind of don't because I uh, I mean I would never write an article for a paper or a magazine now expressing an opinion about anything I know remember when I we no used to do that <laughs> remember when we used to have opinions and be like this is what I think I used to have I an opinion five days a week for money and now I'm like I can't think of an opinion on anything <laughs> other than I like this book I mean even then I'm hedging I'm hedging Caroline I'm hedging yeah did I like it do I hate it? Do I think it's dangerous? Do I think it's... It's very sexy. And I think that's kind of what we were kind of touching on with the film stills, is that mm. gauzy, sexy thing. So I've not seen the film, but much to Caroline's dismay, I did decide to watch some clips of it on YouTube. It's impossible to find the full thing anywhere on the internet. It feels like a fever dream. You can't watch it anywhere, legally or Ill- illegally. Yes, you can. You can't get it on Netflix, on Prime, or on anything, and yet, like, fragments of it exist all over the place, very much like the Lisbon girls themselves. Very that. We felt very apt to be desperately combing the internet to watch any little bits of this film I could get my hands on. I know, in the, in the thing that is about desperately combing through ephemera and um, trying to put a picture together, we were also desperately combing through the internet trying to put the film together. Maybe I think, maybe that's why it's missing. Maybe it's just a long just to give con you that from sensation. Sophie Coppola. <laughs> a long con. She had to wait for Amazon Prime to be invented. She had to wait for <laughs> but that's what you're like if you're a Coppola. Event. You think in generations. Do you know what I mean? Very good. Thank you. Very well done. Very Thank smart you. joke, that. Smart joke Very the... smart joke. <laughs> this is why we're unbearable. You're going to have to edit this out. That's a joke you can take in your handbag to split. <laughs> Um, anyway, so watching random clips of this film this morning, which I have not seen, but much like you, Car, I have seen one million stills from it. It's everything I associate with this book. It's like the gauzy film cover, mm-hmm. posters of it. I am surprised by two things, and both of them, I think, are worth thinking about in terms of this book. The extreme sexiness and their extreme youth. They mm-hmm. are babies. They yeah. are babies. They are babies, which I did not twig. As one never does when you when one reads a book when you're in your teens. You don't think of the teenage characters as being children. You think yeah. of them as being fully formed adults whose reasons are valid. And Yeah, you I didn't think when I first read this of Lux as being young at all. I thought she was yeah. glamorous and sexy and grown up. And it's like, no, she is fourteen. She's she 14. is a fourteen year old baby and uh yeah, I mean, sleeping with everybody that moves. Yeah, and 
And that and what what's interesting in that as well, and I think if you were if you were to do a bad faith reading of this book, you would say, Okay, you've gone you've done five sisters here between the age of thirteen and seventeen. Why have you made the fourteen year old the horny slut who bangs everybody on the roof? Like why would you not make the seventeen year you know what I mean? Like Yeah. There's a there's a it's a real strangeness. And I think it's I think you're, you're. I think it's there because you're supposed to feel deeply uncomfortable with it. I think it's a deeply uncomfortable book, and I think that yeah, there's you could do a bad faith reading of it. Where you're like, oh, it's about you know, middle aged man writes a book about like desperately sexy young women and blah 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 and the spell they cast. I mean, to be and clear, I think, yeah, I might be doing a bad faith reading of this book. I might feel I haven't decided yet. As we go through the podcast, yeah. I'll decide my faith, but. There is part of me that wants to do a bad faith reading of this book in that there's no girls in the book who aren't the Lisbon girls. There's no girls in the book who aren't either the boys' mothers yeah, or sexy, mysterious, dead girls. Mm-hmm. And that makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable in lots of ways. But I don't know if it makes me uncomfortable like Lolita makes me uncomfortable in the, you know, in Lolita... Now, because you're meant to feel uncomfortable. You're meant to feel like you're a horrible, horrible person for reading this disgusting man's horror. Mm. Although, some thoughts on Lolita, having just recently reread it, and as your friend of mine, Tash Hodgson, pointed out, why does it say a comedy on the cover? Why are all the quotes about how funny it is? Why is it called? I've never got that either. I've never found it particularly funny. I think men, some men think it's funny. I think men are like, oh, a black comedy. How dark. And all the women are like, oh, yes, a dynamic that has haunted me from my earliest youth. Yeah. A dynamic that has both informed and illustrated everything that I... Every interaction I've had with men since I was 15. Exactly. I think we've actually let it go on a little while now without me doing a plot summary. And I assume most people... Oh, my God. Because this book is so well known and the film is so well known, I assume people sort of know where we're at. But I'm going to go into plot summary anyway. Please do. I can't wait. The Virgin Suicides focuses on the Lisbon girls, Cecilia, Lux, Bonnie, Mary and Therese, five highly sheltered sisters who each kill themselves over the course of a single year, and the neighbourhood boys who define themselves by their demise. The story is not told by a single narrator, but by a collective we, the middle-aged men who have never stopped collecting artefacts on the most memorable event of their childhoods. And I think this is, this last part of it, is what made me so excited about this book when I when I when I when I realized when I was about 15 pages in and I was like oh I'm I love this like it makes me excited as a writer to read a book told from a narration point of view that I've never seen before this idea that we're getting we're you know it's constantly it never falls out of the we that like and we were told by this person we were told by this person we and then as as the book as your kind of confidence in the narrative kind of goes on the books the kind of almost magical realist quality to the to the we the like oh the, the, not not only have they are they just like sharing stories and sharing memories they are collecting artifacts they have like case studies they yes. have interviews they have artifacts they have labeled artifacts and i found that so so thrilling i read an interview with him where Eugenides, where he said, "Oh, if I wasn't didn't have a Greek surname, no one would call it a Greek chorus." And I think he's wrong. I feel there's a Greek chorusy element 
to using the plural oh, I never anyway. Even thought of that. And I think there is a Greek. I thought about it a lot. Like, am I just going with Eugenides Greek name? It's probably Greek. Whoa. Yeah. Um, but no, I think there is this quality of speaking together and chiming together. I have a question for you. Did mm. you try and work out by detective work who was actually doing the writing? Oh, Which no. one of those three... Bo- See, I couldn't stop myself being okay. like, who are you? And is that is that a reflex that you had reading it this time around or reading it when you were a teenager? I don't remember. I wish oh. I did. This time around, there's a bit where he's like, oh. And then he picked the boys who went on dates. And it's like, okay, so it's one of you three. It's one of you three and you're being disparaging about this guy. Yeah. This guy's oh. getting the most disparaging. So I think it's one of you two. And then I was like, is this helpful? And I was interested that my own response to the book this time, and I think probably more this time, was very much interrogative. I was very like, okay, so you watched them, did you? All right, give me your next piece of evidence. I felt I came to this book as an adult with, as we were saying earlier, some bad faith. Mm. I felt kind of rereading it. Like, I've been burned before. Okay, so we've got this Madonna whore thing going on. We've got lots of mothers, we've got lots of virgins, maiden, mother and crone. I felt quite tired for a lot of... And that's not a function of the writing. I felt in myself tired at my own desire to like interrogate this book. Oh, that's really interesting that you say that. Were you kind of like chiding yourself, being like, Ella, shut your brain off and just enjoy the writing? Or Right, like, yeah. yes. I just... Like, I think the writing in this book is magnificent. Like, I really want us to dedicate some proper time to how he writes about smells. Smells oh my God. and taste. Sm- yes. He's Everything the mo- one in of the this most book. sensorial writers. Everything in this book smells. Everything. Yeah. The, one of the first sentences is her small body's giving already had the odour of a mature woman, which is such a horrible sentence. But, like, she's been lying in pools of her own blood and, like... Yeah, and, like... What I love as well is, like, generally when you describe a book as being, like, sensorial, it's like you're expecting, like, oh, beautiful cooking smells and fabrics and and, and lushness. Velvet. Velvet is what I always think when people say sensual. Yes. And, like, but, but this, he's so good at the sort of the decaying of smells. And when there is a decaying of smell, there being, like, smells behind smells. Do you know what I mean? Smells behind smells. And, like, the bad smells are not necessarily bad smells. And the good smells are not necessarily good smells. There's a bit where they talk about how the house started to give off this smell of decay and death and how sometimes they would find it later on in the bad breath of the women they're sleeping with. Yes. And how they love that because it reminds them that they used to be young and that they used to smell this smell. And like, it's very complicated. Uh, Anyway, so I've got loads of, I would say my notes, like half, like random quotes they were merely sound animals uh, at least i tasted it once man and then suicide reporting generally problematic suicide catching <laughs> that town in wales <laughs> sylvia plath problematic question mark <laughs> teeth is this good like i would say my experience of rereading this book as an adult and i think my experience of reading this book particularly tinged as an adult who has been both suicidal and as an adult who used to be a teenage girl Mm -hmm. and for me this book is very heavily gendered 
it's very heavily gendered all the way through and it's very interested with gender which um for me is kind of makes sense with other things i've read by eugenides like middlesex mm-hmm. so i kind of want to stress the point that i am reading this as a cis woman who was once a cis teenage girl who has grown up entirely within these constraints mm-hmm. of what it is to be a teenage girl and then what it is to be a woman i found it very hard to put down put down my defensiveness about this book mm. i felt very what's your thing with older women what's your thing with teenage girls yeah. because the mo- there's mothers and then there's teenagers there's no other girls in the neighborhood i i do i do understand what you're saying and i think because I wasn't holding anyone or anything to ransom when I picked this up. I was just more like, oh, I've heard this is good. Let me go in. Yes, and then, for sure. And then definitely, I mean, like... I was... I had that moment where... I'll tell you where the moment where I stopped being critical of it was. Which was this moment where I stopped being ready to be critical. Because as you do... You know, when you come into a a book as a as a female reader and or even just a even remotely sort of politically engaged or sensitive reader you are sort of like waiting for that middle-aged man to sort of like kick you from behind the knees do you know what i mean and she's like oh there it is there's the bit where you hate women and like i i don't want to read that way but like you said i'm just like kind of in a way programmed to it because i think like i i this is kind of um uh, a bit tangential but like I had a, a male friend say to me recently like oh you never sort of read books by men do you and I was like not, no not 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 that they don't I never read books by men that I do mostly read books by women but I think mostly because I see book reading as such a private world as a, like very much apart from watching movies or watching TV where all of those things are still I see as being run by men and then I see when I read books I want to be in a private woman's world where I live with my women do you know what I mean Um, I do I do I think for me I read primarily women and I think I still probably do read primarily women because I just don't want that kick in the back of the legs yeah yeah, when you're, just, when you're reading like a really good mystery story and then suddenly the guy is just like, oh, and her tits were sagging all over the place. I guess because she was dead. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is literally it. And the thing where it's all like that thing in a book where it all suddenly just be like, the man will like guess a woman's weight and then be like, and that was why she was so fat. At least, I'm not going to give a number because it's yeah. bad, but you know, and it's like some tiny weight amount and you're like, huh, you yeah. hate me or he like, uses some kind of word like slack and i'm like don't use the word slack <laughs> don't use the word slack don't ever to use describe the word slack. any body part particularly the ones you're thinking of um let's just leave but, it but the moment where i realized that i wasn't going to get kicked in the back of the legs by jeffrey was <laughs> we're calling him jeff now aren't jeff, we? Uh, yeah <laughs> he's our friend my our friend jeff <laughs> was when i read this bit um kind of around the 30 page mark where he's talking about the girls and their periods. And he says, those five days of each month were the worst for Mr. Lisbon, who had to dispense aspirin as though feeding the ducks and comfort crying jags that arose because a dog was killed on TV. He said the girls who also displayed a dramatic womanliness during their monthly time, they were more languorous, descended from the stairs in an actressy way and kept saying, 
cousin Herbie's coming for a visit. And it's like stuff like that, that just like the actressy way of descending the stairs. I was like, oh, Jeffrey, that's a good read. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, I also have that bit highlighted. I I feel like he knows us, he sees us, he gets us. And that whole bit, like when they're reading Cecilia's diary and they're kind of understanding what it is to be a teenage girl, I was like, oh, you are, I mean, oh, Jeffrey's on our side. Do you know what I mean? And that's what gave me the confidence to be like, I'm just going to enjoy this book, you know? That's true. I don't feel like Jeffrey Eugenides hates women. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to come right out. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think from my reading of this book, I've done no research. Don't don't counsel me. <laughs> I don't think from my reading of this book that he hates women. I do think that it's very hard to tell apart what the boys think about women from what an author thinks about women. And that is because I have been burned too many times. Too many times. Yeah, which is because like, I, that's, um, we're probably focusing on this too much, but like, I, I always give women writers the benefit of the, benefit of the doubt. Do you know what I mean? Whereas always. I often don't give male authors the benefit of the doubt. And, um, and that's, a, that's a prejudice I will have to confront with my own God. Um, okay, I think I will now drop my bad, bad faith. faith argument of is this book problematic? And the answer is maybe kind of, but also no. Which yeah, that's where we stand. Is as clo- that's as close to an opinion as you're going to get from me now, folks. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> maybe, but also no. Ish. So now we can um, we can move on to the just the enjoyment and like the writing and the everything, you know. So I want to talk. I don't know. I don't know what things you have earmarked to talk about. I want to talk about mouths. I want to talk about mouths and smells and taste and teeth. There are yeah. so many mouths in this book. Everybody's got their mouth open all the time. The bit where Mary goes to the dentist and asks to get her teeth done by herself weird the bit where they steal uh, where uh that guy's retainer gets left at the house until his mother has to buy it back in a yard sale after everyone's dead and And she buys it back and the fact that the lisbons don't give the retainer back yeah yeah everyone's like the social contract is if someone leaves their retainer at your house you give it back and it was so perfectly teenage like everybody having to have retainers or put were your teenage years full of people putting things in and out of their mouths Yes, like just like constantly. the tooth things. Obviously, given your own tooth situation, I have had a real flashback to that over the last six months. Oh you constantly yes. being like, I've Listen, got to put my tooth in my bag. I'm not sure how many of our listeners know this, but I've had a real, real teenage tooth experience over the last few months, and I've been wearing a retainer a lot of the time. So I feel very deeply like if I left my fake retainer tooth in somebody's house after a party, even if their youngest daughter had just committed suicide. I would expect to get it back. <laughs> we would all expect to get it back. Um, I think there's something... Yeah. That, while we're on the subject of teeth, um, and I know you're just like, generally appreciating the teeth because they're always good to see and find in books. Um, the thing with how the girls have all these overcrowded mouths, that they, I they're all that's... born with too many teeth. That is exactly what the next bit I have highlighted, is their crowded teeth. It's so... It's such a great... Um, little detail and like the way that he described they describe sort of their faces once they go to this party that they have and that they all oh we saw them all as being this one kind of hydra of many heads but actually they have like distinct personalities they're not actually all as beautiful as we thought whatever but there's the bit with the teeth that they oh they all have the same overcrowded mouth they have too many they've got two extra canine teeth yes 
And that's that's such a great choice because it's like their parents are in this lifelong effort to sort of defang their own children, right? And to try and create these sort of like partially lobotomized Christian Catholic working class girls or, you know, middle class girls. I think this book is very much about sort of social mobility as well. Um, and the uselessness of that. Do you know what I mean? The like, the, the trying to constantly deny the fact that their daughters are born animals. We're, as we all are. As we're all born mammals. As we're all born to fight and claw and chew and fuck and do all the things. And this sort of like constant attempt yeah. to psychologically mold them and cut them off from the world and have them be in this hermetically sealed bubble is so offset by the fact that they just have all these teeth, you know? It's uh, it's such an obvious metaphor, but one I've never seen used before. Yeah, yeah. I've never read another book where it's like, and they all had two extra canine teeth. What do you think of that? And I kind of... We were talking earlier about this smell that comes from their house that pervades the neighbourhood that the boys are then obsessed with. Yeah. And they describe it as the singed smell of drilled teeth. Bad breath, cheese, milk, tongue film, but also the singed smell of drilled teeth. And I was thinking about that in terms of... So there's this part where Trip, Font- Trip Fontaine is the sexy boy at school. He is mm-hmm. the sexy head turner. Everybody fancies him. And he is in love with Lux, who is the 14-year-old second youngest. She's a slutty 14-year-old we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. A choice. A choice there. Um, and anyway... He goes to that. He goes to the house. The parents. Do you remember that bit where he goes to watch telly oh, in their house? Oh, I, I underlined it a lot. Yes. Like, which we should talk about. It. The fact that the only date he can get with her is to go and watch telly with all four of her sisters and both her parents. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's not sitting next to her and he doesn't speak to her. And he just sits in this darkened room watching like a Disney Channel thing. And there's this thing where he says, like, they laughed the laughs of a family that was used to bland entertainment. And I just thought, oh, I just fucking loved that line. Yeah, and then afterwards, at 10 o'clock, Mr. Lisbon says, we usually go to bed now, son. Time for you to go. And he goes and gets in his car. And I guess what happens is Lux comes out to the car and kisses him. Mm-hmm. It is the sexiest little scene. You would think that they were fucking with abandon. Really. Yeah, yeah. He like describes her as having multiple sets of arms, multiple mouths. She's like an animal. It's weird. It's very like, it's like it's not even like hot. It's just like a monster no. movie. It's like a Lovecraft. It's a monster thing. movie of yeah, really Lovecraft, re- but very sex. It's very like sex, sex, sex. Yeah. Anyway, Trip Fontaine says in later life that he's never experienced it again, and then he says, "At least I tasted it once, man. At least I tasted it once." Which is- and. A weird thing to say about something you said when you were 15 and making out with a 14-year-old in a car who you've never... who you've got to hang out with once more before she was locked in her house forever yeah. until and she who, died. and crucially, you abandoned on a football pitch after you fucked her. Oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to yeah. get to... I was just sick of her. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, yeah, but it's all mouths and teeth and tasting and they've got too many teeth and they're animals and... Ooh, they're weird, these girls. Which I guess is kind of... I don't know, I've never been a teenage boy. Do teenage boys think that teenage girls are weird, soft animals with too many teeth? I, I, I once again, have never been a teenage boy either. But um, this did sort of bring me back a little bit to... Cause like, have you ever had that thing where 
in your neighborhood or in your family or not, not in your sort of wider circle where there was a family that everyone was obsessed with yes but i am not going down this road because my mother listens to this absolutely true <laughs> and i feel that gossiping about neighborhoods i've grown up in and families we think are weird is the oh, kind of thing that is fair enough i mean feel free go for your life car but when you're the person having a screaming round with your mother about how you said things about people she has to still be nice to um well for me and i and i honestly don't care because um because i'm from a bustling metropolis called cork city where there's lots of anonymity ah top shop and chemo ella's favorite thing is that i try to convince people that like cork is like um this uh, bustling metropolis which it kind of is when i like my sort of my lisbon girls experience and i think everyone has something like it was um when i was 17 my kind of like major boyfriend was the second oldest of a very very large family of 11 kids and i'm still um i'm still very good friends with his next younger brother um i'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this but like they um grew up in a very specific way that a lot of people like i'm not gonna say it's like lisbon girls sort of level but they were definitely very strict they um had lots of rules around studying and things and where they slept and what they did and even though I was in this relationship for like I think a year and a half which at that point was my longest relationship when it ended I remember not only mourning the relationship but mourning this level of access that I was allowed to get because like I was allowed to like have this like privileged view into this like very exclusive household that only really like they knew about themselves and everybody else just kind of wondered about and I just reading this back I was like I remember how clear and how potent that feeling is of like oh my god if we if we just knew how they ticked do you know what I mean yeah I don't I don't know I sincerely hope it's not like that thing if like if you can't name the weird family in your neighborhood you were the weird family (laughs) in your neighborhood and I'm conscious of coming from a family with lots of sisters no I think we're all quite normal um but yeah I know I think for me, I have always found that more in fiction, like the Mitfords. Yes, like, I, I wanted to talk to you about the Mitfords and the Lisbons and like... What a Lisbon perfect are... sentence. I yeah. always wanted you to talk to me about the Mitfords and the Lisbons. We could get the wife like, of Henry VIII in there. <laughs> yeah. uh, the groups of women. Um, and like this thing of... you, Because like, the Lisbons kind of ha- do have that Mitfordy edge to them of like... Lots of girls in a house who aren't allowed to mix with others, just behaving erratically, playing their records, fighting. You know, but it's like how oh, that sure. doesn't work outside of like an aristocratic countryside genteel background. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got like the Bennets in Pride and Prejudice and you've got the March sisters in Little Women. Yeah. And you've got the Mitfords. And obviously two of those are fictional one set of those are not fictional but have written so extensively about themselves that at this point in their self-mythology they might as well have been fictional very well put and accurate none of us are getting the real Mitford experience we're all getting the real the Mitford experience as filtered through six different women all of them angry (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but none of those are sort of suburban you know the Bennets have this yeah, the Bennets are kind of slightly trapped in history, really. Although, I guess, at the time... At the time, are they not just a sort of upper-middle-class middle family 
trying to do the best and the house is entailed. And then I guess when Jane Austen was writing, she is writing about, oh, this weird family of sisters who live in a house that isn't really theirs. And Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Like, there's definitely lots of, like, templates for it, isn't it? But it's like... And and it and what's so what's such a good twist on it is like yeah we have the marches we have the Bennets we have these examples of like these crowds of brilliant sisters or whatever who are a little bit strange and um, to sort of put a horror bent on that and to sort of I think this is a horror I think this is oh yeah yeah I think particularly in the last sort of like twenty thirty pages I think it becomes like a complete horror like I was complete my skin was completely crawling by the time the girls were all dead you know. Yes, I think if you're going to say a sentence, by the time the girls were all dead, my yeah, skin was yeah. falling. Because this is the deaths of five young women, and you never know why. The yeah. only thing you get for an explanation is Cecilia saying at the beginning, after her first suicide attempt, and the doctor says, you're awfully young to be in here. And she says, clearly, doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. Which Such a shithead thing to say. <laughs> it's got the exact poise I would have loved at 13. Yeah. Um, but it's this thing of like sorry. yeah we, we never we never know why and also like what I think what I, also what kept coming to me when I was reading this book I was like there are so many ways this could be a more boring book than it is like there's like there's a version of this book where it's like oh we have like you know more we have like oh a, a chapter just told from the perspective of Trip Fontaine or whatever or like oh we we talk about whether or not they were being abused or whether they were being sexually abused or, or physically abused or whatever or like and that to me would have edged the book into a kind of horror slash crime novel mystery novel thing that would have made it a much less great the mystery piece of is literature. Who, the mystery for me is who they are rather yes. than why they died. Yes. And I think that's, it's a really interesting, it's an interesting way of looking at suicide. You see, I told you I was like really on the fence about this book and my opinions are no longer set in stone because actually maybe that's the genius of this book is that it does talk about suicide. It talks endlessly about suicide and suicide of young girls, but doesn't do that thing of like, and then what happened? And why did it happen? And let's pour, and even though they're like looking at these exhibits, the exhibits they've collected, which is just, you know, Mary's retainer or I can't remember the thing they've lipstick got like a photograph things, yeah. lipstick a bra that someone stole from their house so many sneaking into other people's houses mm. I don't remember it being that possible to sneak into people's houses without I think it's very knowing. it's it's a very suburban thing and I think because you didn't really grow up in a suburb and I very much did like I grew up on the same street my entire life with the same neighbours my entire life and, like, I do have these very, like, isolated experiences in my head of, like, oh, yeah, so and so, such and such place would always leave the back door open and you could just kind of go into their kitchen for a bit. Do you know what I mean? And... No, that's insane to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, like, what I loved about this as well is that, like, I think that there is this sense that, um, oh, suburbia is, like, a static, depressing place where nothing happens. And, like, while there's an element of truth in that, I do think it's quite, like, a boring literary conceit. And also... This, I think what this book does so well is that, like, there is a, a morphing time thing that happens within this book where it's, like, it's very... I think especially what made me so interested in it, it was not just the girls, but the neighbourhood and the sense of... Like, and I think that's that was the benefit of reading it as a 30-year-old woman rather than a 15-year-old woman, of, like, being, like, oh, this sense of, like, they come from, like, a post-war, like, sort of 
suburbia thing where it's like everybody has been sold this dream of like white picket fences and sort of Brady Bunch values and that sort of like evangelical Christian kind of spare the rod, spoil the child, mother knows best, all that kind of family cookout, that whole sort of like very tidy America we all know about. And then as they grow and because this is happening sort of like the 70s I guess like most of these boys are going to Vietnam you know and like there's like this rotting of a dream a Brady Bunch dream starts to come apart with the Lisbon girls and that I find so intriguing and it it kind of furthers the thing of like suburbia is not static it moves the way everything Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Everything else moves. Let's talk about the way that when the boys are talking about, when the boys are men and they're talking about these girls dying, they talk, there's something like, there was a sense that they saw it coming. The elms, the end of this prosperous time. I'm going to see if I can find the exact quote. Hang on. Much like with the Joy Luck Club, there are sentences here I have highlighted that I just want to read out loud because of the richness. Oh, God. Yeah, Totally. Oh, like I've got one here. To, um, I, mean, I think it must be near where you want it. It's um, something sick at the heart of the country had infected the girls. The Lisbon girls became a symbol of what was wrong with the country. The pain it inflicted on even the most innocent citizens. And in order to make things better, a parents group donated a bench in the girls' memorial to our school. Do you know what the creepy thing about the bench is, though? And this brings me to something I really wanted to talk about. Is yeah. when they talk about, in memory of the Lisbon girls, daughters of this community. Yeah. And Mary's Which still alive. Weird. I mean, it's weird to call them daughters of our community. Yeah. When they've got parents. Like, there's an implication there that the adults in the community know other things. But also, the main thing I wanted to talk about is that Mary is still alive. The difference for me... So one reason I wanted to talk about this bit where Mary's still alive was reading this book as an adult, an adult who has lost people who are incredibly close to me, including, coincidentally, the friend with whom I first read this book to suicide... Um, that lostness, that feeling of grief, and I, I found it much harder to read Mary being left alone this time than I remember feeling as a teenager. Yeah, like I was just thinking about my sisters. I honestly couldn't bear it. I think it's kind of like, you know, when people have babies and then they're like, oh, I could never again read a book about where a child goes missing or anything bad happens to a child. Yeah, which is its own vibe. But certainly for me, reading that bit where Mary's on her own, it was just like, I could not, I could not be on my own. I could not be on my own without my sisters. And I don't remember when I read this first, feeling very much about like the relationship as sisters. And I think that's Mm. partly to do with when you're a teenager, 
you're trying to break out of this homogenous mass and the idea of being the only survivor. While you wouldn't choose it, obviously, I like my sisters very much, I don't wish mm-hmm. them to commit mass suicide. I really... I shouldn't have to say this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of... There's something about being a teenager, 15, 16, 17, where you're kind of like, get these teeth out of my mouth. I have to go. Mm. I have to leave. I have to be the only one. Yeah. and it's... About breaking out of this pack. And now reading as an adult, having left home, I live quite far from all my sisters. It made me want to gather my sisters close. It made me want to gather my people close. It made me want to be like, none of you. None of you are to do this. None of you are to leave me on my own. I found it much harder to read. I think probably because suicide to me now is not... There's nothing... There's no kind of beautiful abstract to it. Mm. Which I think... This book tries really hard to avoid and can't quite. I think the, I think that tension comes up most in these smells, in these smells that are not... They're not unpleasant to them. They're kind of like, oh, there's life in... There's a bit where he's there like, yeah. there's life in this smell. It's not yes. just decay, it's rich... And like someone says, I can't remember who it is. It's something like um, they thought at first it was like a dead raccoon or something, but they're like, no, this isn't the smell of a dead thing. It's the smell of a live thing. Um, We tried to locate its source, looking for dead squirrels in the yard or a bag of fertiliser, but the smell contained too much syrup to be death itself. The smell was definitely on the side of life and reminded David Black of a fancy mushroom salad he'd eaten on a trip with his parents to New York. It's the smell of trapped beaver, Paul Baldino said sagely, and we didn't know enough to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way it's written, though, because I love that sort of, like, balance of, like, them looking into this, like, gaping maw of the Lisbon house and then it being offset by these very, like, clean, like, mushroom salad activities. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, because the boys have clean lives. Yeah. The boys have these lovely, clean lives with their fathers who sweep the lawn and do the bonfires and their mothers who like make them food and although do you remember when Trip Fontaine sleeps with the older woman yes yes Trip Fontaine is probably interestingly the most significant character after the Lisbon family I would argue that Trip Fontaine and Lux Trip Fontaine Lux and Cecilia are the characters in this novel and everybody else is supporting I feel unfortunately and it's one of the things I don't like about this book I don't feel like I know Therese at all. No. I barely know Mary. I barely know Bonnie. I know Lux and I know Cecilia. The youngest two. And I, I feel though, like, in argument to that though, that almost all like big family novels that you read, like your your little women's, your um Pride and Prejudices or whatever, there's always a sense of, well, there's two main ones. <laughs> and the rest of them are kind of there to offset the qualities of the of the two main ones. This has always been my argument against little women that like Amy and Joe are the only characters and the rest are just like, and filler, you know? I mean to be fair, Beth is not a character. Meg, I think, is there to show off Joe. Yeah, sure. Um But I think if you're gonna kill them off, you I would. I want to know them. I want to know the other three because they yeah. die just the same. Yeah. But basically, Trip Fontaine is the character of the boys. He's the only one who routinely gets to do things on his own. 
Yes, yeah, and he has like a, a private life. Trip Fontaine has a private life, and he goes on having a private life. Just he's he's becomes an alcoholic, right, in the desert. Yes, and they they sort of like go they go out to question him, and he's in like a rehab center. I find the actual setting of this novel, rather than the written setting, fascinating. Where are they that they're collecting yeah. all this evidence? When they go and interview Mr. and Mrs. Lisbon, who are now apparently divorced, living separately, mm-hmm. who who's doing the interviewing? You know, it's like the the exhibits. There's a bit that like. It's the only bit like this, and I highlighted it because I loved it. Uh, Yes. A photo survives of that night, Exhibit 10. And then they describe the photo in detail. Gripping one, and then he says, or they say, gripping one another, pulling each other into the frame, they seem braced for some discovery or change of life. Of life. That, at least, is how we see it. Please don't touch. We're going to put the picture back in its envelope now. Yeah, and that I sense l- of a tangible, a tangible, physical... This is a mass of evidence. We are looking at it. And then later on where they talk about how they're in the treehouse and everything's, deca- everything's decaying. And it's like, it's so, it's so geniusly done, I think, as well. Because I think if it gets trickled in so gradually into the novel and that if if you had... Because like, when you're reading the beginning of it, it's like, oh, these could be like a group of men who are like in a bar years later who happen to be discussing the Lisbon girls. I can buy that. But then as the book goes on, it's like, oh, no, this is a case that they are building against no one but their own memories, you know? And I loved that sense of I they're interrogating their own memories and their own ideas of themselves. It's just... It's such a good book. Oh, you see, I've changed my mind again. It's a good book. You've now. changed your mind again. It's a good book. Um, and yeah, to 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 discuss the sort of thing with memories, and it's like there's so much of that thing of the sort of betrayal of the older generation in this book as well. In that thing of like, there's this oh. bit where they um the found the older generation don't really know how to deal with this whole Lisbon tragedy and like there's definitely a sense that before Cecilia's tragedy before Cecilia's suicide where it's like oh um you know they were a weird household certainly but they weren't like completely hermits or anything they were just kind of strict and a bit strange and then this thing where um, yeah he's the maths teacher like he's the maths teacher he's in the community that's what I had sort of forgotten is that he's in the community he's in the community yeah Trip talks to him about Lux at school after maths. Yeah. He's a person who exists outside the confines of this house, which his wife and daughters are very seldom permitted to do. And the weird thing as well is that, like, it's very much framed as, like, this is a guy who married a very strict woman who we don't really get to meet in any significant way. Like, Mrs. Lisbon is, like, framed as being the person who who is basically responsible for the way the Lisbon household is run. And we never get to find out why. Why yeah, is it so strict? Why can't they do normal things, you know? And there's that bit where Tripp says to Mr. Lisbon, I want to take her to homecoming. What if all of us, what if a group of boys took all your daughters to homecoming? And he yeah. says, oh, the wife would never allow it. And I remember it says something like, oh, and he looked at Tripp like, like Tripp was supposed to be like, ah, oh, women. Yeah, like yeah, like they were supposed to bond over the unreliability of women. It's so weird. It's because it's like at the beginning of the book, it's not as if that the Lisbon family are um, 
freaks. It's more that they're out of time. It's like, this is a book that I'm guessing takes place like 71, 72, and they're in 1951, you know? Totally. They're totally. about chaperoning, they're about appropriateness, they're about like not letting boys coming into the house, you know? It's like, it's it's like, it's weird by a modern lens, but by the by the, the time period the Lisbons are living in themselves, not that weird. It's not... It's not crazy until it gets crazy. But the yeah. thing is, of course, you start this book with Cecilia's suicide or su- first suicide attempt. So you know already, like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. We like, And I find that a very interesting choice. You know, we don't get any time to know the Lisbons before we know. Like, right from the title. They're yeah. doomed. There's no hope of, like, reading this book and, like, it might be different this time. Do you know what? Actually, I thought I had a brief moment of hope, despite the title and despite everything I know about it. I did have this moment of hope where it was like, um, babe, I know, I know. I thought that, you know, on the morning, the last lesbian daughter, on the morning, the last lesbian daughter took her turn to suicide. It was Mary this time and sleeping pills like Therese. The two paramedics arrived at the house knowing exactly where the knife drawer was and the gas oven and the beam in the basement from which it was possible to tie a rope. And... What I took from that was possibly that there are many suicide attempts in this book, book but perhaps some of them survive. Because it says the last Lisbon daughter took her turn at suicide. As a, so I was like, okay, maybe it is about attempts rather than... Maybe, like, one does get out. And but would that, would that not be worse? I, mean, I don't when know. It looks like, when it looks like Mary's going to survive, for me, I just couldn't bear it. As discussed earlier in this podcast... But the idea of one of five surviving, what's she going to do? Yeah. She's lost. She's not like, she's one, she's one finger, you know? She's Yeah, I, yeah, I know. But, and, and she's yet one, I felt this. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I felt hopeful, but then I read it before and I don't remember what I felt yeah. when I was first reading it. I just... It's so interesting that it's the last one. And then it just goes straight into... He was carrying the heavy respirator and cardiac unit past the bushes that had grown monstrous and over the erupting lawn, tame and immaculate, 13 months earlier when the trouble began. Yeah. And And then you go straight back. Cecilia the youngest, only 13, had gone first. And this thing of, like... I also expected that it was... And this is, like, a major spoiler now, but, like, this thing of, um... Oh, she kills herself, but then the rest of them must... And, like, and you're given this 13-month time frame, and obviously that's a very small amount of time for five people to lose their lives, and you're like, oh, it's going to be staggered, and I thought, like, it was going to be, like, we're going to get to know Bonnie, and then she would die, and then we get to know Therese, so and then she I. would die. So and did then, I, even though I've read it before. And then we get to this ending... And we we had a discussion offline about like um about the pacing of this book and whether or not it works and this thing of like um so essentially what happens is and this is a, a very huge spoiler and like the really the whole climax of the book which is the the boys they kind of establish communication with the girls through kind of like Morse code lampshades and lights and playing torches. records down the phone it's very sweet and it's like the only hopeful moment of the book where you're like oh like they just they just want to talk to the boys and they're all going to run away together and the boys decide they're going to rescue the girls and they they get a car they go over there it's like midnight and 
when they, they think they're rescuing them and they think the girls are complicit in this rescue and what the girls are actually doing is staging a suicide pact. Um, and this there's this moment of them going down to the basement rec room and realising oh the party... God. The party that was put on a year previously in order after Cecilia's first suicide attempt so that she, she could have some kind of a normal life or whatever has not only not been cleaned up, but the entire basement has been flooded. So it's like all this rotting punch and party streamers and just floating rats. And then one of the sisters is hanging from a rope. It is Stephen King fucking levels of like... Throw it the is very the Stephen King, isn't it's it? It's very Stephen King, yeah. Do you know what? That's true. It's very like that thing where it's like the Bobby socks. Yeah. I assume that we don't need a trigger warning on this because if you're coming to listen to an episode about the Virgin suicides, you know there's going to be some discussion of suicide. Yeah, yeah. Nonetheless, a very specific trigger warning for what I'm about to say. With the shoes, where they just see that, so one of the boys starts dancing in the flooded basement. Because he's just like, oh, remember when crazy Celia, Cecilia tried to kill herself? And he starts, like, dancing in this flooded basement full of this party that they attended a year ago. And over his shoulder, they see the shoes of the hanged girl revolving behind him. And it's so awful. It's so horrible. It's the most... I don't know. I don't know. And I'm back to thinking that maybe the book is irresponsible. But that's, I think, because I have really absorbed the Samaritan's guidelines for this is not how we talk about suicide. Because yeah. we don't, and I think this is worth bringing up actually, we don't talk about methods of suicide because, and we don't talk about the specifics because suicide is catching. Mm. And that's, we know very, that's a, also the message of this book. Not message one of the, of the book. Of this book, yeah. It's, but that's what we know to be true is that suicide is catching. Yeah. We know that when people read about suicide, they're more inclined to do it. And there have been like several cases... And this is really interesting. I haven't looked into this at all. Love to start a theory with that. <laughs> I've done no research. I remember when I was a teenager, there was something in one of the newspapers that was in the school library. My school library got newspapers and put them in the library. You could go and look at them. Very I remember nice. us all looking around at this one about like a town where teenagers kept killing themselves. And I think this was pre-Samaritans regulations. And maybe it was like in Wales or somewhere and it was just like another suicide death of, you know, 15-year-old Nicola or whatever. And us all being like, oh my God, I wonder what happened. Like, what happened in this town? Like, how come they're all killing themselves? Like, ooh, this is kind of exciting and thrilling and scary and suggests that death is something that could happen to us. And we don't report suicide like that now because we know that Mm. teens who read about suicide are then just like, huh, well, it's not that bad. And like, do you remember the bit in this book near the end where they talk about even all these years later when someone tries to kill themselves? Yeah. They think, oh, you've gone you've gone to the lovely family house where all the Lisbons are. The Lisbon girls made suicide familiar. Later, when other acquaintances chose to end their lives, sometimes even borrowing a book the day before, we always pictured them as taking off cumbersome boots to enter the highly associative mustiness of a family cottage on a dune overlooking the sea. Every one of them had read the signs of misery old Mrs. Carophilus had written in Greek in the clouds. On different paths, with different coloured eyes or jerkings of the head, they had deciphered the secret to cowardice or bravery, whichever it was, and the Lisbon girls were always there before them. Let's let's not get into my deep feelings about ghosts, guys, because I have some, but I don't think they're worth bringing up on this podcast. But what I do want to kind of bring back to is this idea of suicide being catching, and... 
suicide and the way we talk about suicide basically acting as an encouragement and in this book it's like did cecilia breathe out some virus that the others all breathed in when they went to try and help her and the answer is like maybe kind of we don't know i do like and i don't want to sort of um fixate on on the act of suicide as it were but like i do think that because it because the first time you hear about some about it when you're young it does it feel and i remember that exact thing that you're describing of hearing about like these schools where like you know four people kill themselves and then five people then six people and just seeming like this like oh my god what are they doing over there and it um it feeling like you know when you're on a cliff walk or something and you're afraid you're going to hurl yourself off and i remember it seeming like that seeming like a thing that as soon as you knew it was a possibility being like oh fuck could i just decide to kill myself would that yeah could, could i yeah like almost like um like a, a zombie thing or something it's like oh could i be exactly. bitten by this and not even know exactly and There's, yeah i i have this conversation with myself as an author like quite a lot of the of things that while tragic and terrible and hit people in um very deep and upsetting ways are nonetheless ripe for fiction for ex- i think su- there's a reason that people um dwell on suicide in narratives and it's not i don't think it's because it's sexy or glamorous and i i think it's because it's perfect for narrative because because no one no one ever gets to know quite why no like and even if there's you always, even if you leave a note you never get to know exactly why you like, it allows for writers to be creative with with methods with discoveries with this it's it is such a rich writerly thing to get into you know what's interesting to me is it's sort of one of the last big mysteries it's the thing that we will never be able to answer. Yeah. We will not... Because you don't get any responses from the dead. Which means that you can't kind of figure it out. You don't really... And I don't think we ever will get a chance to make peace with the concept of suicide. And I think there are some... You know, I have fairly... I don't even know. I have fairly in-depth views on things like euthanasia and... like you know all that Mm -hmm. and that i think is different but these kind of the suicides as they're describing this book suicide as a result of mental illness there's a mystery to it there's a there's a why 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 that science is not going to be able to find an answer for yes you can't there's no algorithm that's going to make you go oh that's why she did it and here's how we can bring her back there's and no answer. Well, particularly as like in this book in particular, it goes out of its way to be like these were fundamentally quite normal girls from like from the outside. Do you know what I mean? Like in the in the rare instances that we meet them, they're like they're girls. They're sort of like fiddling around on the radio in the car. They're just sort of they're just sort of girls, and they're like, oh, everyone thinks that we're not normal, but actually we are. You know, and yeah, we just want to be able to live. One of them yeah. says, yeah. We just want to be able to live. And so you can. You can. Babe, just and hang on. What I find amazing I feel- as well is that there's no evidence of there being any kind of rebellion apart from the suicides themselves, which is the ultimate rebellion against their parents. But there's no, there's no like, 
There's no descriptions of them being beaten, them being abused, no hints that they're beaten or abused, no hint that anyone runs away, no hint that there's fights within the family. It's just this kind of like tacit acceptance. Well, it's very I unusual mean, to a teenage novel. Yes, I think so. Although one of the first things you learn about Ce- Cecilia is that poem, the two lines of the poem she writes in her. Yes, diary, I love this. Yes, which is something like. Trees like lungs filling with air. My sister, the mean one, pulling my hair. And that's really the only thing you get about the sister relationship you get in evidence from any of them is this thing of violence. And, like, I mean, look, if we're going to say that pulling your sister's hair is a cause for suicide, <laughs> certainly you certainly you and I are going down. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. But, yes, we don't know. This is book is a, this book is a mystery. It's a why so why it, it? it's it's like a it's it's just it's so elegantly frustrating. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's so much that yes. we don't know and never get to know, and it's all on purpose. Yes, and also, so when I was looking at the clips of this on YouTube, clips of the film on YouTube earlier, mm-hmm. I sent you a couple of screenshots of comments on the YouTube videos that really broke my heart. Did yeah. you see them? I did. Yes. And one of them, this person's just like, these men, their poor wives and children, having to know that they're just still obsessing about these teenagers from the 1970s. And I was like, that is true in this fictional. <laughs> and I loved the idea that someone was watching this video and just thinking, well, these grown men shouldn't be obsessing over teenage girls because it's so true. It's like, put your exhibits down. You're never going to know. You're yeah. never going to find out. And I think the book acknowledges that. And I, unless you have significantly more to say, I was just going to read the last No, we should definitely wrap up now anyway. Yeah. And the book acknowledges. Like, why? Why are we so... Yeah. And so it's this comes just after the bit where the doctor writes in... The, they've got hold of the doctor's report and he says... Suicide is like Russian roulette. Only one chamber has a bullet, but with the lesbian girls, the gun was loaded. Mm-hmm. And then the narrator says, But this is all a chasing after the wind. The essence of the suicides consisted not of sadness or mystery, but simple selfishness. The girls took into their own hands decisions better left to God. They became too powerful to live among us, too self-concerned, too visionary, too blind. What lingered after them was not life, which always overcomes natural death but the most trivial list of mundane facts, a clock ticking on a wall, a room dim at noon, and the outrageousness of a human being thinking only of herself, her brain going dim to all else, but flaming up in precise points of pain, personal injury lost dreams, every other loved one receding as though across a vast ice flow, shrinking to black dots, waving tiny arms out of hearing. Then the rope thrown over the beam, the sleeping pill dropped in the palm with the long lying lifeline, the window thrown open, the oven turned on, whatever. They made us participate in their own madness because we couldn't help but retrace their steps, rethink their thoughts and see that none of them led to us. We couldn't imagine the emptiness of a creature who put a razor to her wrists and opened her veins, the emptiness and the calm, and we had to smear our muzzles in their last traces of mud marks on the floor, trunks kicked out from under them. We had to breathe forever the air of the rooms in which they killed themselves. It didn't matter in the end how old they had been, or that they were girls, but only that we had loved them, and that they hadn't heard us calling, still do not hear us, up here in the treehouse with our thinning hair and soft bellies, 
calling them out of those rooms where they went to be alone for all time. Alone in suicide, which is deeper than death, and where we will never find the pieces to put them back together. It's just such fucking great writing. Like, as an ending. Yeah. And, like... the, the for the sentimental garbage sort of the we're in the habit of rating things of their sentimentality and their garbageness. I think this book is highly sentimental, and I think that closing paragraph is as well. But it works on me and for me so well. It's highly sentimental, and it is a book obsessed with garbage, obsessed with rifling through <laughs> oh my garbage God, and going with through garbage, garbage. Yes. garbage and trash and things smelling and things rotting. Sentimental garbage. Virgin Suicides is sentimental garbage. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. It is. It truly is. Wow. You know, I came up with this podcast name so casually, but it just, it keeps uh, echoing through. Sentimental (laughs) garbage. Keeps working. Um, My sort of parting shot on this book, which I absolutely love it, and I think I will will reread a lot, is I think it really is about, rather than the girls, rather than the suicides, rather than the ephemera that they collect. It's about like pinpointing exactly where your innocence died. And like yes. there's this there's this amazing line very near the start where they they talk about their parents and their and and how their parents behaved after the suicides and they said something like it was this it was as if they didn't believe in the world they had created for us. And I think that's a very palpable word like thing that happens remember, when you're a kid. Do you remember the day of grieving? When the day, I love that day of grieving. Bit. When they're yeah. at school and none of the adults will say this is what and why we're grieving and all of the kids know. And they yeah. all take home different things from it. And I think it's that moment of being like, oh, you're all cowards. You yeah. won't say it, but we all know it. You won't yeah. say Everyone agrees on. we should do something, but no one can agree on what it is and no one's willing to be specific either. And this this line about like how the Lisbon girls sort of like sat in the gym for the most of it, and they just were out of all of it, and um, being like at the end of the day, most of the healing happened from those with to those of us without wounds, and like, and it, and think- the, the thing like yeah, it was never for the Lisbon girls. It was always this kind of weird attempt to insulate the other kids from the Lisbon girls. Stop it, catching for all- yeah of the community protecting the community and i think actually perhaps that's the i'm not in the habit of looking really for morals or for or for kind of lessons from my fiction but i think there is something to be gained particularly at this kind of present moment in thinking about who is this healing happening for who is this helping what yeah. about the people with wounds and I think we're seeing quite a lot of like things I hesitate to call performative because I think everyone's trying their best, but like lots of talk about how we can be better. The Me Too movement, yeah, like everybody kind of starting to say things against transphobia, even from really remarkable sources, and obviously Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps the useful thing that this book can say to us right now is that bit about who's healing here. And is it the people with the wounds? That is so true. And not a point I had thought of. Yeah, like, is this about, yeah, the the sort of constantly reassuring of one another as opposed to, yeah, the people who need to be reassured. And 
Like Because if they'd got that day of grieving right, they might have had one death, not five. If they asked the hard, you know, if they'd asked the hard questions, if they'd looked at what was going on, and no, it's like we'll have a day of grieving. We'll all agree that that will be the day. But you, people who are actually affected, go sit in the gym while we discuss it. I don't know. I just, I'm not really, as I say, I don't like to look for morals. I don't like to look for lessons. No, that to me feels pertinent to the national and indeed international conversations we're starting to have now of what are these celebrations and commemorations and public displays doing? Yeah. And who is it helping? Who is it helping? Who is it hurting? And because the day of grieving is goes so wrong, everybody in the book has to spend the rest of their lives either dead or obsessed. Or obsessed and like constantly. With death and decay. This, this book reminded me of more than anything else was my own... My own dad. And my, my dad is a... He was born in 1950 and he's a Kennedy nut. Like most Irish men of that generation are. Um, like he will... There is no fact about the Kennedy case, about his life, about his death, about his wife, that like he does not know, that he won't pick over. If there is something on the History Channel where somebody claims to have received a postcard from John Kennedy and there's an hour dedicated to that postcard, my dad is watching it. And I asked him once why he cared so much. And he said to me very, like, very straight-facedly, he was like, you know, he was he was 13 when Kennedy was shot. And he's like, it was the day my innocence died. And I do think, like, I, I draw a straight line between that and this of, like, I do think people are obsessed with their childhoods. I think people obsessively pour over them because I think the way that time passes within your childhood, and we all know this, is much longer than how time... Like, I remember the age of being 11 much clearer than I remember being 23, you know? And I think that's just what happens to time as you grow older. And I think because so people pour over endlessly and they, they want to pour over that moment where it ended and that moment where you went out to play for the last time, you know? And I think that's what the Lisbon girls really yeah. are to these men. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, and I sympathize with it and I don't think it's, and that's again, again, why I believe that Jeffrey is on the side of women. <laughs> he's not gonna, and he's not here to kick our legs. And like, it's, and, and it's, and I, and I take him at face value when he says in that conclusion, like it wasn't that they were girls. It was that we loved them, you know? Yeah. And that's all there ever is really, isn't there? It's, you know, it wasn't about them. It was that we loved them. Which yeah. I guess is centering them again. Anyway, a complicated book about which I apparently have uh, many different opinions. Yeah, all of them interesting. Uh, let's yeah, let's close up the podcast here. Do you want to say anything about your life and work? I'm not doing anything. <laughs> uh, I'm not I doing anything, anything. I don't think I have anything coming out. I don't think I. I don't think I have anything to announce. It's nice to be back. Let's do more podcasts. Let's do more. Yeah, we've got more coming up. We haven't decided what they are yet. Um, I've got a book out. It's called Scenes of a Graphic Nature. Please go buy it. It's dedicated to me. It is, importantly. And we're going to be talking about it soon. So it would be really be in your best interest to read it. So Buy it, read it. You'll get to hear us talking about it in ways that betray that I think these people are real. (laughs) (laughs) I think the characters are real. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, 
or email me about the podcast at theirlineofdonahue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com